Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Hello, Hub listeners. Today is August 4th. Uh, we're in the midst of summer, as Rudyard likes to say, the dog days of summer. Uh, you'll note um, my voice today, um, moderating today's roundtable conversation. That's because uh, Rudyard is off, um, but uh, we have Ginny Roth, uh, one of the Hub's regular contributors, joining us today, and, and there's no doubt that she'll do uh, uh, an admirable job filling in for Rudyard. Uh, Ginny, thanks so much for joining us, and Stuart, uh, good to have you on as always. Good to be here, a long-time listener, first-time co-host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, John, and thanks for being here, Ginny. Um, guys, we have a, a busy agenda, actually, uh, for today's conversation. We're going to cover three topics. Um, the, the, the first is urban crime issues, which is something that uh, Ginny covered for us uh, in a piece on Monday about a particular um, issue in the city of Toronto, and in fact, her neighborhood, and that is the growing uh, level of, of crime, violent crime in particular, in and around um, um, what are sometimes described as safe supply uh, dispensaries. Um, second, we'll take up the subject of immigration, because I think the three of us have observed a kind of changing way in which not just um, the general public is thinking and talking about immigration, but even uh, elite voices, including bank economists, editorial pages, and, and so on. And then uh, last but not least, uh, we'll take up a big announcement from Tay-Tay. Uh, Taylor Swift has uh, announced that she's indeed coming to Canada with six shows in the city of Toronto uh in november 2024 um but let's start with crime uh jenny not only did you write the piece that i mentioned um earlier that i'd encourage uh listeners to check out uh but i had you on the the hub's regular podcast hub dialogues early in january and i asked you uh about some sleeper issues that you thought may uh be elevated uh, over the course of the year in terms of uh, the public conversation and uh, the political dynamic. And the issue that you you centered on uh, was the subject of what you called crime and its attendant issue set. You wrote, you said, quote, I think addictions and mental health and crime all fit into the same bucket because of course they're interconnected. I think that one of the issues that the commentary is sleeping and the public is living uh, sleeping on and the public is living firsthand. You went on to say, I, I think you see some of the early roots of that or shoots of that in Canada, in our big cities. And so I think big city policy when it comes to crime and mental health and addiction treatment is the issue to watch for this year. Um, prescient comments back in January. Just talk a bit about um, how uh, your prediction has come to materialize. And we're seeing it not just uh, manifest in big city policy and politics, um, but increasingly at the national level. Yeah, I mean, before I pat myself on the back, I would just add a caveat. Um, some of the better latest polling we have from Abacus and, and Leger, I think, would corroborate this. Doesn't actually put crime super high on the issue set of important issues. It's like sixth or seventh. Um, and it, it's lingering there in like the double digits. There's still a lot of people in the country that care about it. 
Um, but I don't, I don't think that means it doesn't matter, right? It matters less than things like cost of, cost of living and, um, and the economy. But, uh, but it's not shooting up in the way that like you might expect if we were in the sort of a 1970s crime crisis. I don't think we're there yet. And I think that's because we, while we, our urban centers are growing, there still aren't a ton of people who live in the true core of our urban centers yet. They're sort of living it firsthand. I, I'm one of those people. Um, and so I'm experiencing it much more, much more viscerally. And then the media is covering it because it's interesting to cover. I, I think it probably gets, gets clicks because um, it impacts people's lives. But having said that, I, I think what, what I was right about is the conservative party needs to have something to say about crime and mental health and addiction issues. Uh, they can't opt out of the conversation in the way that we maybe have historically because conservatives haven't thought, thought of it as like a strong issue set uh, for them. And I think uh, Pierre Polyev seems to understand that. Uh, he seems to have a lot to say about it. And so it means that if uh, it does become a bigger issue, for instance, when the weather gets colder and you start to see people um, who are living rough outside have to find a place to live inside because uh, it's a cold country, uh, that those issues could escalate. Um, and and I think the conservatives have done a good job of sort of priming themselves to have a lot to say on that issue and actually exposing the left for having uh, a lot to say on it. But, you know, they've sort of experimented with their policy set, as I argued in my column from last week, um, and the experiment seems to be failing. We'll come back to the conservatives in a, in a minute, Ginny. Um, but I want to, uh, Stuart, come to you and the government's position on these issues. We have a new justice minister, of course, part of uh, last week's pretty massive transformation of the federal cabinet. And the new minister challenged the idea uh, this week that crime is, in fact, on the rise. Um, do you think that this issue represents something of a vulnerability for the Trudeau government, uh, Stuart? Yeah, I think there's two aspects to this. One is what the government wants to do and strategically knows what it should do on this issue. And the second thing is the kind of muscle memory they have when they talk about these issues. So I think you know, when you see a bunch of new ministers coming in, um, they're not as briefed as they would be six months from now. And they're kind of just going into what they would say in conversation or, you know, in their everyday lives. So I, I think that's what you're seeing there is that there is a disconnect a little bit with the liberals on how to deal with this. And for progressive parties, especially the liberals, gun control was always the way that they would say they mm. were tackling this issue. And that initiative has not gone well for the liberals. So I think that was kind of a canary in the coal mine there that first of all, that they're having trouble getting on top of things when it should be a layup for them. And secondly, that this issue is starting to get away from them. And Ginny's right. It's not salient. Um, it's not as salient as it could be anyways. Um, but it doesn't take much for it to, I mean, we we all saw what happened in the 2006 election where there was a shooting on Boxing Day and then that became a big issue. Mm -hmm. And it also contributes to sort of, you know, maybe if crime isn't top three, there is kind of an overwhelming sense of disarray um, that I think it just contributes to. Yeah, Jenny, you mentioned the need for the conservatives to build out a, a fuller, richer uh policy agenda as it relates to these issues. And I think you're increasingly seeing that in part at the federal level, but more importantly, at the provincial level. Uh, for a long time, I think, as you kind of implied, harm reduction as a strategy to deal with issues around addiction and, me and mental health and so on, um, for all intents and purposes, had a monopoly over the policy conversation. And I think what you've seen in Alberta and some other provinces uh, an attempt on the part of conservatives to, in effect, challenge uh, the harm reduction paradigm uh, with a credible conservative alternative. How, how important do you think that is um, 
in, in general, and in particular for the federal conservatives to kind of shift this issue from something of a, a, a shield to an increasingly um, political sword? I think it's so important. Um, Jason Kenney started this work in Alberta, and actually just this week, Danielle Smith kind of put a feather in the cap uh, with her mandate letter that she issued to her new minister, I think his name is Dan Williams, um, in Alberta on this file. Uh, obviously, her chief of staff, um, people will know this, uh, is a, a someone who struggled with addiction himself and has a really um, strong set of views of, of what's required, uh, steeped in conservatism and thinking about treatment and the seriousness of treatment um, and the challenges with, with a harm reduction agenda. And actually, the mandate letter goes so far as to suggest that the government should explore um, uh, and, and try to pass a law around uh, involuntary treatment, like this idea that actually people who are struggling often are a danger to themselves and a danger to others and cannot get the help that they need unless the state intervenes, um, which we haven't seen since uh, sort of the institutionalization of decades ago. Um, although there are small experiments with it, I think there's some cases in Toronto where, you know, in CAMH, for instance, best in class treatment where, um, where we're trying it out. But uh, we really haven't tried this in a long time. Uh, they're trying it in New York City. There's some promising results so far. And so I'm really pleased that there is a jurisdiction in Canada that's sort of like going headfirst into um, trying this different approach. Because what is clear is that this sort of status quo approach is not working. Um, you know, even the left will say when you quiz them on it, well, we need more time. Like, we just need more time. They don't, there's no one out there saying, like, look at all these people succeeding and getting their lives back because it's, it's not what's happening, right? Opioid um, addictions and deaths are, are shooting up uh, and continue to. Uh, Stuart, in addition to Ginny's great piece uh, on Monday, we ran a piece later in the week um, by regular Hub contributor Steve LaFleur, who's something of an urban policy uh, observer and expert. Uh, and he wrote a, a bit about the set of issues that conservatives need to champion if they're going to make the inroads that they need to in Canada cities. I, I mean, it is simply a matter of political arithmetic. Uh, if conservative parties at the national level or the provincial level don't manage to make those types of inroads, the path to victory is very challenging. Um, one of the issues that he raised uh, was crime. Um, talk a bit about the potential for conservatives to seize on these issues in the name of trying to kind of break into uh, Canada's major cities in the next federal election whenever it comes. Yeah, there is a funny disconnect here. I think it's what Ginny was talking about, which is that, you know, these issues tend to happen in the cores and the cores tend to be very progressive. Um, and then, you know, the conservative vote comes from the suburbs. And in Ontario, one of the sort of underrated things about Ontario is the amalgamation has made these sort of vast kind of semi-rural and suburban outlying areas that are very conservative. And then all of the progressives are deep in the core. And, you know, it tends to be why we have, we have a, you know, right of center, maybe centrist mayor in Ottawa. Um, and they have progressive mayors in Calgary and Edmonton. It's just a different kind of system. Um, so it is hard. And you are entering hostile territory as a conservative. I was talking to a friend who I would not consider a conservative, but more of sort of a centrist or center left person who was, you know, they were talking about a playground that's across from a safe supply area in Ottawa. And he was going nuts at this conversation because it was so far away from the everyday experience of bringing your children to a park and finding needles on the ground. And, you know, whatever you think of safe supply, recent polling shows Canadians are split on it, but 
you know, maybe more than 50% of Canadians are okay with the idea. Um, I think when you talk about needles on the ground of a playground, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious that that shouldn't be there. Uh, And I think there is a disconnect that conservatives could exploit here, which is that when you're talking to real people about this, it's so obvious. And I think that's the kind of language they have to use when they talk about these things. Uh, Jimmy, that's a great segue to your piece and and the particular experience that you and and your neighbors have had. Um, And I want to come to you on that in a minute, but just to pick up uh, Stuart's observations, you know, one of the ways in which I think this represents a, um, a, a potential opportunity for conservatives um, is that not only are is there the kind of basic personal security dynamic, which of course um, is pretty fundamental to how people feel about um, their family and their their circumstances and so on. But then there are these secondary consequences that comes with the type of um, of concern around basic safety and security that that uh, we've been discussing in Steve's piece which I'd really encourage uh listeners to check out he observes that um the TTC the, the Toronto subway system is estimating that this year um its recovery ratio that is the percentage of its overall costs paid for um by by transit fees will only be 39%. So in effect taxpayers are going to be on a hook for almost a billion dollars of, of operating subsidies. And um, and that at least in part is a function of riders essentially voting with their feet over concerns around um, um, basic safety. And so I, I think that there are various ways in which I think uh, conservatives can prosecute the case uh, against the set of progressive assumptions that have underpinned the way we've thought and talked about issues around crime and mental health and addiction. Um, and uh, the cost of of public transit is is only one kind of proof point, it seems to me. But Ginny, before we move on to the subject of immigration, why don't you just give listeners uh, a bit of a window into your particular experience in the neighborhood of Leslieville? Um, you know, it's been observed in our conversation that not everybody lives uh, in the downtown core of our major cities. So for those listeners who don't, paint a bit of a picture of the sure. the kind of costs and consequences. Uh, of the policy choices that we've made on these issues sure. in the past several years. Yeah, Leslieville is an interesting community. It was a working class community for a long time, and then it just rapidly gentrified uh, over the last decade or so, um, and, which is why you know people like me live there now, sort of like young urban professionals. It was like really the last neighborhood where you could buy a house for under a million dollars in the last 10 years if you wanted to try to do that and still be like live that really walkable life where you could commute into the downtown core in 20 minutes on the streetcar, that kind of thing. Um, and as a result, there's been a huge sort of baby boom in Leslieville. I mean, you, re- you truly can't walk down the street without dodging strollers, like there are kids everywhere. Um, but it's still it's still mixed. There's still sort of sort of blue collar workers who owned their home for a long time and are sitting on it. And, um, and there's, there's housing uh, that's subsidized by the government and that sort of thing. Um, and there's a there's a healthcare center um, that applied at one point to be able to um, uh, do sort of drug consumption services, by which they mean basically healthcare professionals will sit with someone while they consume drugs that they've purchased in the illegal market. They're illicit drugs. They don't actually have safe supply. They have um, supervised consumption. Um, and they get uh, clean needles so that they're less likely to contract HIV or or um, hepatitis or or some other disease, um, all of which I think most reasonable people agree is probably a good thing, right? Um, and the other thing that uh, is good is that, that harm reduction people will tell you is that 
as um, opioids get harsher and are used more aggressively, people overdose more frequently. And if you can uh, witness an overdose and you're equipped to reverse it, you can. And so you can save lives. And that's, that's quite clear. They, 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 lives have been saved because people have consumed their drugs in this space. Um, the challenge is uh, uh, there is no next step, right? So there's no, you know, in theory, people get referred to treatment, but they're not forced into treatment. And so often people, because they're deep in a drug addiction, opt not to. Um, for, for understandable reasons. And so, um, and as you can imagine, if you use drugs, you flock to a place like this because it's a supervised place where you can make sure you don't overdose and, and maybe you can even hang, you know, build, develop a bit of a community. And so there is, um, there are a lot of, of drug users and drug addicts that are around this place. And it's truly in the heart of, I think there are like three childcare centers and two or three primary schools within a couple blocks of this place, which have cropped up since, um, since the safe consumption started happening. Um, and it, you know, it wouldn't have been approved uh, had that been the case, but the gentrification has happened so quickly that um, you know, everyone's sort of living among each other. And the result of that is you know, piles of needles in alleyways, kids picking up fentanyl patches in playgrounds, um, just a really, like as Stuart says, something that no reasonable person would, would think is acceptable. And then, um, and so the community was responding to this. They were having meetings, they were trying to get uh, change. And then tragically, uh, a few weeks ago, a woman was gunned down uh, by a stray bullet. Um, and, you know, the people are very quick to say there's no proven link between the site and the gunman, but it's quite clear uh, based on witnesses in the in the neighborhood that these were frequent uh, drug dealers who frequent the community um, quite often, because uh, as you can imagine, drug drug dealers are going to be drawn to a place where people who buy drugs are in, um, in abundance. And so um, and so that really ignited a fire under the community. There's been, there have been town halls, there have been, but what I've observed that's so interesting is it is a progressive community. And so you've got lots of people who feel really passionately about wanting to defend their own public safety and their own kids, but who think of themselves as progressive and who want to feel like they're on the moral high ground, who want to feel like they're doing the right thing. And I think this is why it's important that people who are articulating an alternative policy do so in a way that that uh, shows a compassionate approach and that shows that there is something uh, you know they're keeping in mind the the best outcomes for everyone not just the people living in the community but um but the people that are that are consuming drugs and that are addicted and maybe st struggling with mental health and so it's an interesting um issue set playing out because um because there are people who want to ensure their public safety but i'm not sure that they know what to advocate for uh, and so the language is interesting to observe, as I mentioned in my column, and uh, and I'm not sure where it's going to end up because I don't think that there is yet that that stark demand to reverse a harm reduction approach yet. Yeah, yeah that's great, uh, Jenny. It's a, a poignant example of the issues that we're talking about and only further evidence that we'll have to have you back on the podcast next January to predict the issues we should be <laughs> following in 2024 because you've gotten this one right. Uh, right after the break, guys, we'll be back to to take up the subject of immigration and, and what I think the three of us have observed as a kind of changing dialogue, even in elite circles about Canadian immigration policy. We'll be back, back in a minute. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, Canadian news organizations are facing a more uncertain future these days, thanks to federal legislation requiring Google and Meta to pay for news. Big tech's threat to drop all news content in Canada could have a profound effect on many publishers. Some may well see their web traffic halved in the coming months. So what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thankfully, as a donor-driven charity supported by individuals and foundations, The Hub is thriving. We're rolling out new series, adding new voices, and seeing record engagement across our platforms. 
the hub will continue to innovate and thrive, regardless of the new legislation and whatever Google and Meta do. This is true independence. We treasure it, and maintaining it is our promise to you. If you value independent thinking on the big issues of the day, consider becoming a hub donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. All right, Hub listeners, back again uh, here with the roundtable. I'm Sean Spear, editor-at-large at the Hub. I'm with uh, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Uh, Rudyard Griffiths is off this week, but we have Ginny Roth, regular Hub contributor with us. And I wanted to take up, guys, the subject of uh, immigration. Um, just this week, an, an economist at uh, National Bank released uh, some analysis in which he argued for uh, the federal government to effectively lower immigration levels moving forward because of the pressure that it's that uh, the government's ambition with respect to permanent residents um, is imposing on our housing um, supply as well as other uh, um, infrastructure and, and public services. This follows on the heels of um, editorials from academics, um, even some progressive voices arguing that the Shrove government's um, ambitions to get to half a million um, permanent residents per year uh, is simply too much. Um, maybe I'll come to you first, Stuart. Uh, what, what do you think of the, this change in the, in the conversation? Or, uh, is, how, do we, how do we make sense of the fact that for so long, um, there seemed to be kind of only one perspective out there, which is that Im more immigration is, is always good? Uh, how do we make sense of the fact that you're, you're seeing increasingly, not just from so-called far-right voices, uh, but from uh, mainstream ones raising, I think, questions and concerns about the Trudeau government's immigration policy. Yeah, it's always been interesting because the immigration targets have always been a little bit arbitrary. And, you know, if you 10 years ago were to look at it and say 275,000 people, you know, I'd kind of prefer 200,000. That was not acceptable in Canadian politics. And all the major parties wouldn't say that. Um and, but there was a little more weight to it back then because we did have some kind of a durable consensus, you know, based on multiple years of doing this, based on it not going up very much. And we all kind of agreed that it was fine and things were working okay. And I, as much as it's an arbitrary number, we'd all sort of come to that together. And now the number has changed quite a lot in a very short amount of time. And there's been no political discourse about it because Canadian politics is very afraid to have this political debate. And I think maybe rightfully so, because you see how it goes sometimes in other countries, it is not pleasant. And I think that now you can see these things cracking on an elite level more than you can on sort of a populist level. I think that's kind of the remarkable thing here is that there's no voice doing the Trump thing right now that I'm aware of, uh, at least in a mainstream way. And we have you know, some NDP voices sounding like Bernie Sanders in the 80s, where he was sort of an old lefty who thought, you know, we want to keep union wages high and you do that by keeping the labor force smaller. So I, it is really interesting because this is a weird debate. It doesn't function like normal debates. And that's because it can go awry so quickly. And if you're arguing for less immigration, you have to be very careful to say, you know, you're not arguing against immigrants who come to Canada hoping for a better life or the people who are already here. Mm. Um, it is a hard thing to do. So I I worry that things have maybe been breached, that we've now reached that point where this debate is open um, in a way that maybe will escalate down the road. But I, I can't disagree with people who are making a fair case that maybe the number is going up a little too high too quickly. Uh, 
I'll come to Ginny in a, a minute to talk a bit about the political dynamics here, but I would just say in parentheses that one of the contributing factors, it seems to me, to um, this these growing murmurs about uh, our immigration levels is not just the ambition with respect to the permanent residence stream, um, but I'd encourage uh, listeners to check out uh, Stuart Thompson's excellent coverage on um, the growing numbers of international students um, in Canada, uh, our most successful, most viewed article this year at The Hub, uh, which has showed just skyrocketing numbers um, uh, when it comes to uh, international students. And I think the totality of our PR streams, but then some of these uh, more temporary ones like international students or or temporary foreign workers themselves means that the total number of uh, uh, non-Canadians in the country is something like a more than a million per year. And so when you think about the impact on on housing, both um, both for those who aspire to own their home, but even those who uh, who need to rent their their accommodations, uh, it's that total number um, that's really important. Um, Ginny, you've been involved in politics. I, I should I suppose we should disclose you were a director of communications to Pierre Polyev in his leadership uh, campaign within the Conservative Party. Uh, I've been struck um, that notwithstanding. Um, some of these growing concerns that you're seeing in editorial pages and, and elsewhere, as Stuart says, it hasn't yet found manifestation in, in our politics. Does that does that surprise you? Um, I, I think that's true, although um, this past week, Pierre Pauly, I've had a, a press conference and he was asked about immigration numbers and his language is shifting a little bit. Um, he seems to have found and I think it's only because he's a sort of a courageous leader, right? Like he's not someone who like who has a lot of areas of public policy that he wants to avoid. He he leans in. He wants to have a perspective on things. And I think he sees that what has clearly been his strategy to date, which is leave no daylight between the conservatives and the liberals on immigration policy, because it's only going to work as a wedge. Um, Maxime Bernier and the PPC are not strong enough to dominate dominate on this issue. Therefore, there's no real threat from the right. So better to take it off the table altogether. I think that's shifting a bit because you're seeing the fracturing in the elite conversation. And I think there's something else going on, which is when you look at these this issue set and where um, where Polyev's doing very well on these this questions of sort of cost of living, right? The cost of living is different from how well the economy is doing. The economy can be doing well and people can still feel like they're struggling because their experience in the economy is not a good one. And this idea of, you know, there are, there are sort of some old school, small L liberal free marketers um, who will constantly bang the drum on, we just need to get the GDP up and we need to bring in as many people as possible because that's how we grow our economy. That's just not, I don't think the average Canadian thinks that's adequate to help them um, live their lives and improve their cost of living and improve how well their wages translate into their purchasing power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, there's a path there for Polyev to sort of say, no. And the other thing, by the way, that I think gives Polyev some cover that he seems to have um, been experimenting with is Harper's record on immigration. And in fact, his own as a cabinet minister in the Harper government. Um, we were we actually were known around the world for the, the strength of our immigration public policy under the Harper government, we as a country. And so his ability to point back to that in an immigration policy, which was um, very welcoming, uh, which was known for bringing lots of people in, but doing it thoughtfully and against a strategy, 
and his ability to point to, well, I'm actually concerned with the experience people have when they get here, whether they can buy a house, how far their weight, whether they can get a good job, how far their wages will go and what they can buy with that money, I think uh, leaves a lot of room for him to have a nuanced position, which is different from the Liberals, and which he just refuses to be sort of pigeonholed on um, or be portrayed as someone who is insensitive to um, our growing, more ethnically diverse population, et cetera. So I think yeah. there's space for him there. He seems to be experimenting with it. I'm curious to see where it goes. Yeah, you're right. I I I discern a a subtle shift this week, and we'll see if it becomes uh, less subtle over time as um this elite discourse that we've been talking about starts to to permeate the broader Canadian public. Um, Rudyard's not here, um, so we don't have we we, we won't have one of his um uh, weekly rants. But let me do my best. Um, you mentioned that the Harper government's record on immigration policy. I know the former prime minister. Um, is extremely proud um, of uh, his government's immigration policy, and in particular um, that uh, the government didn't cut immigration rates during the recession of 2008-2009. Um, it, it, it had been uh, not uncommon in, in modern Canadian history for uh, immigration levels to be cut or significantly or, or, um, or to be essentially flat um, in the context of economic contractions. Um, but as you say, the, the government, I think, had a thoughtful plan um, that increasingly tilted the distribution of immigrants into the economic stream um, that was cognizant of the interrelationship between immigration and, and housing and, and other um, basic infrastructure demand. Um, and it seems to me that that helped to create something um, unique for Canada, what, what I've come to call a, a comparative advantage in the sense that we had relatively high levels of public support for relatively high levels of immigration. Um, and the Trudeau government has taken that comparative advantage, and it seems to me put it at some risk um, by juicing the numbers, of whether it's based on a, a kind of wrongheaded view, as you say, Ginny, that uh, maximizing GDP ought to be the goal whether it's motivated by trying to essentially wedge the conservative party on immigration issues like we've seen left-right debates emerge in other in other countries, whatever the motivation, um, this, this policy that's focused on numbers and that's it, uh, without thinking critically about um, the underlying supports, including housing that we need to ensure that people uh, can flourish when they come here, um, you know, is one of the most irresponsible and, and, and reckless things that this government has done and if it ultimately puts that consensus, that comparative advantage at risk, it will be to the detriment of our country. Uh, we'll move on to our final subject in a minute, but um, it's worth underscoring this point. You know, uh, Stuart, when he worked on his, his piece on international students, found it hard to find people to talk about it because on one hand, uh, a lot of scholars and, 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 and experts increasingly have these concerns um, about uh, the government's immigration policy on one hand. But on the other hand, they're they're cognizant that they don't want to, uh, in effect, um, affirm um, the kind of worst instincts of some people and voices in our society. And and it seems to me that's exactly what the Trudeau government has been doing when it comes to just ramming ramping up the numbers without any care or concern for um, the consequences, including for the people that they're they're bringing here. So that's my best uh, attempt at. Uh, <laughs> At channeling Roger, um, uh, listeners will have to let us know uh, how I did. Um, guys, I couldn't let you get away 
without uh, taking up the all-important subject of a, a big announcement this week from Taylor Swift that uh, after uh, snubbing Canada uh, in her uh, initial dates for her her big uh, world tour, that um, she's indeed coming here uh, in 2024 doing six shows uh, in the city of Toronto. Stuart, uh, are are you and your family gonna fork the fork over the the major dough to see Tay Tay for three hours uh, at Rogers Center in in November 2024? Well. My so my six year old who's about to turn seven has just recently declared herself a Swifty, and I was actually kind of pleased that I could tell her like, look, Taylor just didn't come here, man. I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> she snubbed Canada, and now we don't have to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars to go see her. Um, so I think she's probably still a little too young for this, but um, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of pressure. There'll be a lot of lobbying going on in this house, and I will just say though. Is this not a big success for Canadian politics and Canadian politicians that they all got in front of the cameras and cried about this? And then a few months later, we've got a show. Yeah, it, it, you know, it will be bad sign for the Trudeau government's re-election efforts if one of the principal cases it can make is that it, it got Taylor <laughs> Swift to Toronto. Uh, Ginny, what, what to make of uh, what to make of the announcement? Uh, I, I think when we exchanged earlier this week, um, you raised you raised the kind of funny but I think serious uh, observation from the Federal Reserve last month or a month or two ago um, that Taylor Swift's uh, massive tour was effectively sustaining the U.S. economy. Is this good for Canadian growth? Uh, it might be good for growth, although if I were Tim Tiff Macklem and I wanted to see some like downward pressure or some evidence that there's not that there we finally taken the liquidity out of the marketplace, people dropping like thousands of dollars on six Taylor Swift shows is probably not going to help with that. But, you know, like the economy doing well is a good thing and it will legitimately attract a ton of tourism to the city of Toronto. There's no question. So I'm look, I, I don't know if I'd use the word Swifty, but Taylor Swift and I are the same age when her album 1989 came out. I'm born in 1989. Uh, when she wrote 22, I was 22. And I think she's like uh, almost a world historical figure. I mean, truly. And, and part of why I say that is like, it wasn't that long ago that artists were saying, you can't make money anymore because of streaming and you know touring was the way we used to make money um touring so grueling uh you can't charge what you used to be able to charge and she is proving that you can make a ton of money if you do it right and if you were a superstar uh and so like it's impressive uh and it would have been frankly i, I think it would have been more of an indictment had she not come to canada than it is uh a, a, an upside given that she's been everywhere else um but i think it's a good thing for the country and the economy and for all those 50s well, that's a positive note uh, to wrap up th this week's uh, roundtable. Uh, Ginny, I want to thank you for stepping in and, and filling in for Rudyard. Uh, you, you did an admiral job, as you do every two weeks uh, when you write for us uh, at The Hub. Uh, I'd encourage listeners not only to check out uh, Ginny's latest piece about the, the subject of, of crime in the city of Toronto, like we discussed earlier, but uh, her writing for us every, every two weeks. Um, Stuart? I know you have a wedding uh, to go to this weekend and a new haircut in, in preparation. Uh, it's always great to speak with you and, and listeners. Thanks for joining us. And we look forward to catching up next week. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's editor in chief. 
This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.